Well, good morning, everybody. Um, during Lent this year, we have been uh, reading the book of Romans together um, so that we can talk about the meaning of the death and the resurrection of Jesus for people like us. Uh, and it's good for us, I think, to remember um, that the death and the resurrection of Jesus aren't just something that happened to him uh, a long time ago, um, but that they have profound, tangible meaning for us right here, right now, this morning. So our last look at the book of Romans before we switch up on Palm Sunday next week is from the end of Romans 8. So I'm going to read Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, as many times as we sing that song together, I, I feel like I can't hear it and want it and um, need it enough that you would give our jaded senses light. We lurch around from thing to thing, from identity to identity. Father, but we need you to break in and to wake us up. We need you to show us your great love for us in Jesus. So use this word that we have read together to show us the word that bears our flesh, who is seated right now at your right hand, praying for us. Show us the grace of Jesus. Remind us that you really do love people like us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you uh, about one of the most harrowing nights of the first seven years of my life, okay? Uh, this particular day was a Saturday, and um, during the day, our family made the short trip from my hometown in Baltimore to Washington, D.C., to go to the National Air and Space Museum. And while we were there, we made a visit to the planetarium that's there. Um, and to this day, I don't really remember exactly what the planetarium show was about, I mean, other than stars and planets. Um, but I do remember that the narrator, at some point during the show, made a, a passing reference to the possibility of life on other planets and, and UFOs and aliens and stuff like that. So all of this talk about UFOs and aliens was enough to get a young man of seven years old a little unsettled 
um, a little nervous about visitors from another planet. But honestly, I probably would have forgotten all about that on the drive home, and, and we got home, and I think that was all in the back of my mind. But that evening, we sat down to watch a show called Salvage One. We sat down as a family to watch this together. And if there's even one person here this morning that remembers the show Salvage One, I will be completely shocked. This thing didn't make it for more than a half a season. Um, Andy Griffith was the star of the show. He played a salvage guy who had flown to the moon, made his own rocket, flown to the moon, gathered up all the Apollo stuff that was left up there, brought it back, and sold it as scrap. Um, and the show was about his further adventures as a scrap man. I mean, right? Who, who could imagine why this wouldn't make it as a show? Well, that evening, we sat down as a family to watch that show and the further adventures of Andy Griffith that night happen in a haunted house. Not cool. So now, my seven-year-old self was scared stiff. I was thinking about aliens and ghosts. And to make it worse, I had to go to bed. So now I was perfectly primed for what happened next. When the bedroom lights went out, the light came in from outside through my curtains, and it cast a shadow on my ceiling in the shape of none other than Darth Vader. And I became convinced that Darth Vader was hovering outside of my bedroom window, ready to crash in and pounce on me. It was the, the worst night of my life. So I did what any smart seven-year-old would do. I freaked out, and I called for my mom, and she came in a flash. And when I explained to her what was going on, she took a bath towel. She draped it over the curtain so that the shadow of Darth Vader was gone. But you know, and I know, that a bath towel is no match for the Dark Lord of the Sith. <laughs> so here's what I did. I asked my mom to stay with me, and that's what she did. And that did the trick. She just stayed with me. She told me that she loved me and that she wouldn't let anything happen to me. And you know how I felt when I realized I was safe? I felt awesome. That's how I felt. I felt like a new kid. And my mom's love was all the assurance that I needed. And I'm going to tell you what, church, that is exactly, exactly what's going on in that part of Paul's letter that we just read together. Paul is telling his friends to look around and to see that they are absolutely safe. He's telling them, look around. There's absolutely nothing that is ever going to thwart your good. There is no entity that can ever condemn you. You will absolutely, positively grow in Jesus into the people that you were created to be. That is going to happen. It is absolutely certain. And, and the reason that Paul says that they can know this is true, the ground for Paul to be able to tell them this, is nothing less than the towering, endless, measureless love of God in Christ Jesus. His love, Paul is saying, his love is all that you will ever need. It makes you free like you've never been free before. It makes you into new people. And church... That is definitely not just true for people who were living in Rome a long time ago. That is true for people like us right here, right now, this morning. 
So Paul begins this with an old trick that he likes to pull out from time to time. He begins with a question. That question is, what then shall we say to these things? Now, let me say a couple things, not about these things just yet, but about this question, this thing that Paul is asking us about. The first thing is to say that that these things that Paul are talking about is all that he's been writing about since he started this section of the letter back in chapter 5. And over the last four weeks, we've hit highlights together from that part of Paul's letter to Rome. I hope you've been here for a bunch of them. Now, several scholars, several people who write books about Paul's letters, they they think that at least some of what Paul has been doing in chapters 5 through 8 is that he has been retelling the story of what it means to be a Christian through the lens of God's people leaving slavery in Egypt and passing through the Red Sea and wandering around in the wilderness and then finally entering into the promised land. And i got to tell you, I think that's about right. I think that they're on to something when they say that. And that's why back in the middle of this chapter, just a few verses before where we are, Paul writes to his friends, and it sounds for all the world like they're right there on the edge of the wilderness, and they're looking into the promised land. And Paul says to them, look, you, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption as children of God. In fact, the spirit is testifying with your spirit that you are, in fact, children of God. It's like Paul is saying, listen, do not go back into fear. Do not go back into slavery. Do not go back into Egypt because that's not who you are anymore. March on into the promised land. And then he moves into this thing that Pastor Dan talked to us about last week, this thing that we hope for, this moment that we hope for, this this promised land moment where creation itself is set free from bondage with us. And we obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That, that's the these things that Paul is talking about here. The way he has retold the true story of the world and made sure that we know our place in that story. So let me just suggest something that I think would be really good for all of us to do in this next week leading up to Palm Sunday. It'd be really good for us to read Romans 5 through 8 and to pray through them, if you can, and to think about them. Read them more than once, if you can. They're they're definitely really challenging chapters. They're incredibly dense. If you're like me, you'll come across parts of them you don't understand, and that's okay. But the list of people, I have to tell you, the list of people from, from the history of the church of every age, every culture, um, every walk of life, the list of people who have been nourished and braced up by these particular words, I mean, it is a long list. And the payoff for us reading them and praying through them could be significant. So read them. Read Romans 5 through 8 this week. Pray through them and see. See if God would meet you there with his love. The second thing I want to say about Paul's question, what can we say to these things, it's probably obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway, and that is that Paul doesn't expect anyone to really be able to answer this question. He doesn't even answer this question, which is pretty unusual for Paul. 
I mean, what he's saying is, listen, <laughs> I've just told you the whole story of the world, the true story. I've shown you your place in it, and it is magnificent. What could you possibly say in the face of these things? And so Paul's question is really a signal that he's not making any arguments anymore. He's stopped making these dense and layered and really elusive arguments. And now all that's left for him is to celebrate. These verses are like the end of a musical, right, where all of the characters march back out on the stage for one last number, and that number includes snippets of all the songs we've heard before, and all of the themes of the whole show get pulled back in for one last round and one last dance and one last punch, and the whole thing ends with waves of crashing applause. If God is for us, Paul says, if he is for us, who could possibly be against us? And then he calls back to chapter 5, that part of the letter that we looked at during the second week of Lent, where he talked about how we can be sure that God loves us. How we can be sure that God is pouring his love into our hearts. And there, back in chapter 5, just like he does here, Paul makes it incredibly clear. We know how much God loves us when we look at the cross of Jesus. Here's the way Paul says it. God gave him up for us all. If God did that, Paul said, if God gave his son up for us all, how will we, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? If God has done the mysteriously, inscrutably impossible and unheard of thing, you can be sure that he will take care of the rest of it. He will finish the work that he has started in remaking us, and in remaking the world. So we'll come back to the love of God at the very end because Paul comes back to the love of God at the very end. But I don't want to leave this part without saying something that I think is really important for every one of us here this morning, no matter who we are in faith or out of faith. You know, the writers of the New Testament, and Paul in particular, they look for all the world to be obsessed with this idea. They say it in dozens of different ways, and I think that signals the, the, the importance of this idea. And that is this, if, if you want to know that you are loved, all you have to do is look at the cross of Jesus. They say it again and again. If you want to know how profoundly and how deeply and how fully loved you are, then look at the death of Jesus. And of course, you know, they, they get this idea from Jesus. You might remember that story in John 3. This guy named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night trying to get a connection with Jesus, trying to figure out who he is. And Jesus says a lot of things to him that night, not the least of which was how old Nicodemus could know that he was loved. They're famous words to us, but it's good to remember Jesus said it to one guy. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And you're looking at him, Nicodemus. <laughs> and his story is headed to one place. And it is for your good and it is for the good of this whole world. That's how much God loves you. So it's no wonder at all to me, church, that after the crucifixion, Nicodemus was one of the guys who begged Jesus' body from Pilate 
so that it could be taken care of. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure Nicodemus didn't know a whole lot. I'm sure there was a lot he didn't understand, but he did know that Jesus' death wasn't a tragic mistake. He knew on some level that it was about love for a guy like him. And so ever since then, God's people have reflected on the cross of Jesus. They've meditated on the death of Christ in order to experience his love. I don't think I've ever mentioned this in a sermon before. It's another story from when I was a kid, this time 14 years old. And one night I was in bed alone listening to some music. And I was thinking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, praying before he went to the cross. And suddenly I just became unshakably convinced that God really did love me. And it called out this answering love for me. And I've never been the same person since. And standing here, i got to tell you, I can't figure out the logic of that moment. I did not think my way into that. I was met by love in that moment. It came to me. And it came to me while I was thinking about Jesus' death. So what I want to say is that I think this is one of the most basic, one of the most important disciplines of the Christian life. And if you're not a Christian, but you're, you're wondering about it, you're wondering who Jesus is, then I can't imagine a better way to approach the ineffable mystery of the love of God for you. Spend some time thinking about Jesus' cross. Meditate on the death of Jesus. Do it often and see. See if God doesn't meet you there with his love. And here's the thing that's almost too much to take in. While you're doing something like that, or frankly, while you're doing anything else that you do, Paul says Jesus is praying for you. Now, Paul gets to this by asking another one of his rhetorical questions, who is to condemn? And in response to that, even though Paul's done making his arguments and, and, and uh, doing all of his layering of argument on top of argument, he does throw in something new. Right here in the book of Romans, this is the first time Paul ever mentions it. It is the only time Paul ever mentions it. This is what he says. He says, listen, who is to condemn? It's Jesus who's died. And more than that... It was Jesus who was raised, and he is now at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. So church, this is one of the profound meanings of the death and resurrection of Jesus for us. It means that Jesus prays for us, and I want you to know it's happening right now. Now, Paul doesn't say anything about what it is that Jesus is praying, but I think it's safe for us to guess that at least part of it is that we would not be or would not feel condemned. That instead we will believe and we will experience the peace that we have with God because of our faith in Jesus. It's what he talked about back in the very beginning of chapter 5 that we talked about on the first week in Lent. That we will believe and experience that we have peace with God through Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but I can think of lots of answers to that question, who is to condemn? (laughs) My past, 
My past can make me feel condemned. And stupid, sinful choices that I've made as early as this morning can make me feel condemned. The fact maybe that I'm going through something hard in my life or difficult in my life, the fact that things have not worked out in some situation like I hoped they would, like I thought they would, like I worked really hard to make work out, Right? These kind of things, they mess with our heads and our hearts and they make us wonder if we're really loved and if we're really in God's family like he says we are and if there is really a hope for us. And so to every follower of Jesus who's ever felt that way, who's ever felt condemned, the voice that whispers, you're not okay. To every follower of Jesus who feels that way right now, here is really good news. Jesus prays for you. That you will not believe, that you will not hear, that you will not listen to those words. That you will know and experience the peace that is rightfully yours as those who have been united with him in faith. As the author of Hebrews puts it, He always lives to make intercession for you and me. He prays for us. And you know, maybe this good news is the best news to us when we're suffering. Paul asks another one of his questions, what can separate us from this love of Christ? And then he reels off a bunch of contenders. Tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness, famine, sword, danger. And it's good to remember that Paul isn't writing this stuff laying on some flowery bed of ease. I mean, he has experienced every one of the things on this list except for maybe the sword, and that's coming for him. And you know, church, there's probably nothing that you or I experience in this world that has more power to make us wonder if we are loved by God than when we suffer. Paul quotes from Psalm 44 here that Bill just read for us in the Old Testament lesson. For your sake, we are being killed the whole day long. It's like we're sheep being led to the slaughter. It's one of those psalms, one of the handful of psalms that ask God to wake up and pay attention and do something because his people are suffering even though they have been faithful to him. And Paul is defiant. No, he says, no. In all of these things, in persecution, in tribulation, in distress, in danger, in nakedness, in all of our suffering, Paul says, no, no, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We spent a lot of time talking about suffering and, it, and its place in our life back in the second week of Advent. Pastor Dan talked about it again last week. Suffering is a part of our story just like it was part of Jesus' story. And God uses our suffering to make us into the people that he intended us to be. He doesn't work around our suffering like it's a surprise to him or an inconvenience to him. He works character in us and patience in us, and he works hope in us, not despite our suffering, but in our suffering and through our suffering. 
And that is evidence that he loves us. And that love, Paul is convinced, that love is so profound, that love is so unalterable that it will take on all comers on our behalf. And in the end, there will be nothing left, nothing left that is dangerous to us. Nothing left that is not only for our good all the time. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything in the present that we're dealing with, nor anything even unknown in the future that we may deal with. Not powers, not height, not depth. There is nothing, Paul says, nothing in all of creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus. That is certain love. Absolutely certain love. That's what my seven-year-old self desperately needed to know that night I was terrified. As silly as it seems now, I needed to know that aliens and UFOs and ghosts and Darth Vader couldn't harm me. And you know the thing that did it in the end was experiencing the love of my mom. Knowing that my mom loved me. That's what made me know I was fine, that nothing would hurt me, and I was like a new kid. And church, this is what Paul wants his friends at Rome. This is what he wants for us. He wants us to know deep in every part of who we are that as those who have rested their faith in Jesus, we are loved so deeply and so profoundly and so fully that we will never be able to get to the bottom of it. He wants us to know that God's love has taken on all comers against us and there is none, none left to hurt us. Nothing will separate us from this incredibly certain love. And church, being loved like this and believing that we are loved like this, it changes us. It makes us into new people. It calls out in us an answering love. That's the nature of true love, to bind the beloved to itself. And it calls out this answering love that we could have never worked up on our own. And it sets us free. I mean, just think about that person in your life that you want to love with self-giving love. And it's hard for you to do it for whatever reason. It's just incredibly difficult. They say things or do things and it it lights you up inside and it's so hard to love them with your hands open. Or think about that situation in your life where you want to bring your own self-giving love to bear in that situation, but for some, some reason, whatever, you feel bound up and you feel scared and tentative to love in that situation with open hands. I mean, I think we all have people and places like that in our lives and so the question is, what would it take to be free? What would it take to be unbound? What would it take to be unafraid to love in those instances? Well, it takes an apprehension. An apprehension deep down in who we are that we have been loved fully and completely first.
It takes an experience, a tangible, red-blooded experience of being loved perfectly and fully and unconditionally. Knowing the love of God, experiencing the love of God, it makes us into the human beings that we were meant to be. It frees us to love. And this is what we have as followers of Jesus, and it is certain, and nothing will ever be able to separate us from that love. Let me pray for us. Father, use um, whatever you have, which is a lot. Use your word, use our worship together, use the sacrament of communion, use our friends, use our neighbors. Just sneak up on us. Do whatever you have to do to help us to believe that we are indeed loved profoundly, fully, completely, unconditionally, and that that will never end for your people. Convince us of this truth, Father, so that we can be healed and made new. Convince us of this truth so that we can love as we have been loved in this broken world around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.